Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's topic is walking, an often overlooked and undervalued aspect of a flourishing life. And my guest today is Shane O'Mara, author of the book In Praise of Walking, A New Scientific Exploration. Shane is from Ireland, and in case you haven't guessed, I'm of Irish descent. And before the tape was rolling, Shane and I talked about my family's history of leaving Ireland during the Great Famine and coming to America, to the small mining town of Butte, Montana, where my family lived for several generations. Shane makes reference to this when he talks about the human migration. And we also talked about Brexit, which comes up when Shane talks about our human propensity to march in solidarity during times of protest. So I just wanted to mention that. So when Shane talks about it, it makes sense. Also, Shane is a neuroscientist. He's a professor of experimental brain research at Trinity College, Dublin. And he comes at walking from a scientific perspective, citing research on the importance of walking to the human experience and the many physical, psychological, and social benefits of walking. Yet he also is a great writer and observer, so he brings a qualitative perspective to the conversation as well. He can speak to the pure joy of walking, and he has specific tips to get more walking in our day and get more out of our walking. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Shane as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Shane O'Mara. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Shane O'Mara, welcome to The Good Life. Thank you, Sean. Delighted to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, and I'm really excited about the topic of today's discussion, which is your book, In Praise of Walking, A New Scientific Exploration. And it's just a fascinating read. It draws on the latest research about walking and its many benefits. And as you write in the book, we overlook often walking at our own peril. And I, I'm ashamed to admit that I've, I'm guilty of that. I've often underestimated walking for a good portion of my life, and I don't think I'm alone. And that's a subject I hope we get into. But I'd like to begin with this startling claim that you make at the beginning of the book. You ask this question, what is it that makes us uniquely human? What is the quality that makes us different from all other creatures? And the answer to that question is not language or tools or command of fire, all answers that I think I might give if I was to be asked that question, and I think we're all familiar with. But you claim that the answer answer is actually walking. Do you want to defend that answer now? Because I thought your insights were really quite profound. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, obviously, fire and language and a whole lot of things are characteristics of humans. But humans have this unique upright stance, we have arms that are not designed for walking on the ground. We have arms that are designed for carrying things. We have fingers which are remarkable in terms of, of their dexterity. They allow us to point, to gesture, to emote, all of these kinds of things. And the thing that allows us to do all of these things is actually this remarkable upward, upright stance where our brains are in motion and we're in motion in a way that's unique in the animal kingdom. There is no other 
animal that has the stance that we has that uh, and that brings with it the kinds of freedoms that walking brings humans you know so thinking about it kind of expansively uh, because we're upright you know think of the transition from being a child crawling on all fours to being a, a child suddenly walking on uh, its hind uh, on its hind limbs I nearly said on its legs the interaction that child has with its world is very different it can point to things in the distance and adults will track not where the child is but where the child is pointing to so th this gives us a, a, a remarkable capacity to see into the thoughts and intentions of others. And it's because we have our hands free, because we can move, that we have this. Now, th there's a, a further point, you know, so it's easy to get stuck in a kind of a, how did we evolve to be walkers? But think about how it is that we evolved to take over the planet. Humans are, for better or worse, the most promiscuously spread species on the planet. And we dominate the planet in ways that are good and bad. And we did that by walking. And we did it by walking in groups, in tribes and in families. So we did this together. And I, I argue in the book that uh, one of the kind of unique capacities that humans have is this ability to engage in kind of shared imagination regarding places that are far away, where life will be better. As we were, we were talking about in the introduction, you know, leaving Ireland during the Great Famine when people were dying in their droves, making their way to the new world and ending up in Butte, Montana. Why not? You know, because you're imagining somewhere better. And we did this without mechanised transport. It's easy looking at our environment now to, to think cars have always dominated the world. Well, they haven't. You know, families in general have only owned cars since about the 1930s. We've designed our towns and cities around them over that time. But, you know, for the grand sweep of human history, 20, 30, 50,000 years, whatever, we walked, we occasionally rode animals, but basically <laughs> we did it on two feet. Yeah, you've got this wonderful saying in the book, we walked out of Africa. And that's so true. We, Our species literally walked out of Africa. And it's that idea of migrating and moving. The other point I want to just hit on before we move forward is the idea of freeing up our hands, because that was an idea I hadn't really considered before, the importance of walking to freeing up our hands and then how important our hands are to our life and to the human experience. You mentioned a few things, but I'll, I'll mention a few others because you did in the book that really got me thinking about this weapons, you know, our capacity to wage war and, and violence that comes from our ability to pick up a weapon and yield it and use it. Use it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, communication. I think our hands play a role in communication. Hand signals are a common way to communicate. And perhaps that was the first language before our verbal language. I don't, I'm not an expert on that, but I think it's the precursor to so many of the elements that we consider to be you know, the human experience, fire, being able to carry fire, make fire, control fire, carry fire. All of this comes from our ability to stand upright. And I just want to make one more quick point because you mentioned we're unique in the animal kingdom. I, I immediately went to birds when I thought about that too. I thought it's got to be some other animals on two feet. There are, there are these birds, but you mentioned that we're really different. Our bipedalism is different. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, if you, for fun, go to Google and type in a skeleton of, uh, Whatever bird you like, it can be an ostrich, uh, it can be a penguin. Uh, they don't have kneecaps, they don't have articulated limbs, and they don't have articulated hands. 
And the position of the head relative to the spinal column is very, very different. You know, ours is balanced pretty much on top. And that has a, a really interesting consequence, uh, which again is kind of underweighted. We can walk and eat. For example, birds, they have to throw their heads back to line the gullet up appropriately in order to swallow. They have to pause, but we can walk and chew and we can carry on bad conversations while we're chewing. We do this all the time. This is, a, again, a kind of a, a unique human trait, but it, it's predicated on that kind of upright stance that we have that has freed our hands and that is also remarkably calorie efficient for getting around in the world. You know, so if you look at our nearest relatives, like the, the bonobos or, or in particular the chimps, we can walk calorie for calorie between two and four times further per calorie than, for example, a chimpanzee does. So our stance is very energetically efficient. And that means we can harvest food over a, a much greater range of places and distances than, uh, for example, the chimp does. And because we're these kind of omnivorous savages, we, we turn our food preferences to almost anything. We're very, very good at scavenging out sources of food that chimpanzees and others uh, simply don't have access to. That's a really good point. Our ability to gather food, using our hands to gather food and, and walk and look down, look up, look around, gather food, which leads to agriculture and domesticating animals and all these sorts of important steps in human evolution. Let's talk about this idea of the benefits of walking, because if walking is this uniquely human experience, if it's something that just goes way back into our evolutionary history and it's something that is critical or really important to how we experience the world. What is it that, well, I, let me put it this way. You make a claim in the book. I, I like this claim. I'm really sympathetic to it. You say that walking is a holistic experience. Every aspect of it aids every aspect of our being, which is a pretty big statement, but you, you really build it up. So do you, want, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, when people talk about the benefits of walking, they always construe it kind of narrowly. Is it good for my heart or something like that? And uh, I think the reality is that we have bodies that are built for movement. Uh, they're adapted to walk. You know, this is a comparison I like to make. If you, if you want to be a marathon runner, to run a sub four hour from zero might take you six months or more of training. So that's 26 odd miles or whatever. But you can walk day in, day out, 18, 20 miles without too much trouble. It, it's something that your body adapts quickly and readily to. And, and we know this from, from studies, both of Westerners who undertake, for example, the Appalachian Trail or the Via Alpina, or people who live in, quote, ancestral lifestyles who walk 30, 40, 50,000 steps a day. So what I like to say is when you think about walking as something that aids every aspect of our being, we shouldn't be reductive and think about it just in terms of heart health. So humans do something unique. When we're annoyed about something, we walk together in protest. So we were talking about Brexit earlier on. There was an enormous march in London against Brexit. I think something like three quarters of a million people uh, attended that, all peacefully, all protesting against something that they did not like. Chimpanzees do not do this, even though they have 98.5% of our genetic code or vice versa. We will walk together socially, allowing our egos to dissolve a little at the boundaries, to participate in the greater life of the group, to protest at something that is in our imagination. 
their relationships between countries, their imagined relationships, taking it at a very abstract level, walking is, is this profoundly social phenomenon. Bringing it right back down to the, the individual, what we know is that by walking and doing so regularly in good bursts right throughout the day, it acts as a kind of a BAM for your body and as a BAM for your brain. Now, how does it do that? Well, it does that in all sorts of ways. One of the, the simplest and, and most obvious ways is that when you get up and move, what you're doing is challenging your body in ways that it's not being challenged when you're, you're seated. You're forcing activity into muscles and in return, you're kicking off a whole series of changes that otherwise would have been quiescent. So things like anti-inflammatory factors are exuded into the bloodstream. You uh, will burn off excess sugar in your blood. All of those kinds of things will happen. And we also know, again, just come up a level from the molecules, people who move more are much less likely to succumb to major depressive disorder compared to people who move less. So, you know, there's all sorts of levels at which you can treat this. And this is why I say we should look at this holistically. We shouldn't be thinking about it just in terms of heart health. We should be thinking about it from molecules all the way to societies. Yeah, you you just hit on a couple of really big, important points. I mean, there's the physical benefit. There's getting the blood flowing. It's physical exercise, which is good for your body, building energy. And then there's that mental boost. It's that mood enhancement. Who hasn't felt better off a walk? I mean, I don't know any time in my life I haven't felt a little bit better at the end of the walk than I did at the beginning. You're, you're tired, but there's something about just being out there that lifts your spirit. When do we get nervous? When do we have anxiety? It's when we're in bed at night thinking about things or brooding over our computers, scrolling, you know, looking at our phones, scrolling social media. When we get away from that, those feelings, for the most part in my life, have dissipated. So there's the mood aspect. Then you hit on the social aspect too, this idea that we march to demonstrate. If we want change in our society, we're out there marching. Martin Luther King led very important marches in the civil rights movement in the United States in the 60s. Gandhi led incredible marches and movements in India for Indian independence. And these are just a few. We can. You mentioned Brexit. I, living in Seattle last summer, there were several large marches around Black Lives Matter peaceful marches that were very, very profound and had a big impact on our society. And that's what people wanted to do to to force change. And I think when we want change in our life, we also walk <laughs> or we should yeah, walk. we signal it. And, and uh, you know, it, it is remarkably consequential. You know, 50 years or more after uh, the, the MLK march, people still remember it. It's still one of those touchstones. The Gandhi marches, again, a, a, another example and uh, here on the island I live on, uh, in Northern Ireland, the, the, the kickoff of the uh, civil rights movement happened as the result of the oppression of a peaceful march where there was a demonstration about housing. You know, these things actually do matter and people point to these because they're joint acts. They're things that people have shared together and we share it by walking together. It, it, it really is this most remarkable phenomenon. There's another benefit that you talk about in the book, which I can relate to, which is we think better when we walk. And there's all kinds of evidence behind this. But if we just look at some of the greatest philosophers in history, you go back to Aristotle, his school of thought where they were called the peripatetics, because that's the Greek word for walking, is my understanding. And you mentioned a few others, Rousseau, Thoreau in, in America, Uh, Nietzsche was a big walker. 
and I could quote any of them, but the quote you put in the book about Thoreau, I really appreciate it. It says, he said, the moment my legs begin to move, my thoughts begin to flow. So why is this? Talk a little bit about thinking and walking and the benefits there. Yeah, so it's a great question. And one of these things that I, I think is really so overlooked, we're both seated at the moment. We've got chairs that are, I hope are comfortable. And so that the demands that that makes on us in terms of what our brain is doing is, is, is actually quite limited. But once you stand up, things start to change in your head. Uh, so brain rhythms that would have been quiescent suddenly start to appear. Your blood pressure changes. You get a normalization of, of blood pressure across the, the body. A command signal comes from the frontal lobes saying, get up and move. So there's a lot of things going on in your head that previously weren't going on. And many people, and I would be one among them, think that, you know, one of the, the great ways of creating new ideas is, is by bringing together old ideas in new ways. So you get these kind of associations that people have previously overlooked. They haven't happened for you. How does this happen in the brain? Well, you know, as you're seated, what's happening in your brain? It's quiet relative to a standing stance or relative to movement. When you're moving, you're getting a lot more activity and ideas that would have just sat just below the level of consciousness now bubble in and you you can uh, tap into these. And we can test this. You know, it's not just kind of a random idea of mine that this is the case. You can give people tests of creativity and you can titrate the amount of walking that you get them to do before they do the tests of creativity. And what you find consistently and reliably across college student populations, across uh, older adult populations and others, is that if you get people to engage in movement, walking for 10 or 12 or 15 minutes prior to an idea generation session, they come up with more ideas, about twice as many on average, as they would have done had they been seated for that period of time. And just to, to say something about my own kind of, quote, creative practice, when I write Typically, what I do is I, I work my way through the literature, I make notes, and then I take a digital uh, dictaphone and I head off for a walk and I dictate. And that's how I write. So the, the first draft of my books tends to be a very horrible amount of <laughs> sprawly text, but it gets everything flowing. And you regularly end up in places when you, you're walking and talking that you just couldn't possibly end up in when uh, you're sitting and typing alone. So there's a freedom that walking brings you in terms of thought that doesn't happen when you're pinned to a seat. You bring up a couple terms I'd, I'd never heard of that really stuck with me. You say walking is active idleness, and you also say it facilitates engaged mind wandering. And both of these, I think, relate to what you're talking about. Can you talk about both of those? Because I, I thought those were great concepts. Yeah, so one of the things that I love about a good walk is that the enjoyment that you get from it in part is that you're not engaged in anything at all. Your uh, central pattern generators in your spinal cord are taking care of the, the movement, so you're just hammering along, and you don't have to think about anything in particular. So the, the mind can idle over all sorts of things that it wouldn't be so easily able to do if it's trapped in a particular place in front of a keyboard. So that's the kind of active idleness. And we're designed again, you know, if you think about that journey out of Africa, the selection effect was around people who were able to imagine new things, new places, 
that kind of thing. If you, if you weren't able to engage in the kind of active imagination that over the next horizon, there's a river and there's going to be food, and there's going to be whatever, you would never move. You know, so you, you actually actively have to engage in this kind of thing. And you actually have to engage in it with others because one man with a spear isn't going to conquer the world. It's, it's groups, families, tribes, units of hundreds and two hundreds. So the kind of idea around mind wandering is, is actually really important. There are all sorts of reasons why it's important, but just to cut briefly to the chase, when you do what's known as experience sampling, so you, you ping people randomly during the day on their mobile phone and ask them what they're doing, what you find is about a third of our day is spent apparently not doing anything. We're sitting there and we're on a journey of the mind off somewhere else. And this turns out to be really important in terms of brain function. It's sometimes referred to as the default mode of brain function because we spend so much time doing it. We um, are thinking about the big picture of our lives, where we're going, where, we're be- where we've been, what we're planning to do, our friends, all of those kinds of things. And uh, so we're behaviorally quiescent, but the brain is actually whirring away. And I think walking facilitates that kind of mind wandering in a way that being seated simply does not. And I think anecdotally, you'll notice your own experience of walking allows you just to end up with thoughts that you would never have have had before uh, you set off on the little on the walk. I I totally agree with you on that, and I also agree that creative ideas, innovation comes from building on ideas from the past and making connections. The idea that the brain can help us do that because we're walking, because we're engaged in that movement, because it's in this active idleness and it's facilitating the mind wandering. Wandering. You also use the term mindlessness, which I love too, because you know we talk so much about mindfulness, but there's a certain mindlessness in walking that helps us do this, right? It facilitates it. And you were just getting to another really important point about walking, which is if we are walking with someone else and we're having a conversation. And that is another huge benefit of walking. If we can find a companion, a conversation partner, and we're walking, there's something about the human experience of conversation while walking. Our conversations are just better. And I'm. it's not just me, it's in all the literature. I remember a great anecdote about Steve Jobs in his in the in the biography by Walter Isaacson about how when Jobs wanted to have an important conversation with a colleague, he would invite them over to his house and then they would walk around the neighborhood. So talk a little bit about this idea of conversation while walking. Why is it so much better? What's going on in our brain? What's happening there? Yeah, so again, that's a it's a big question and there's there's lots to to think about. So let's just think about the stance when you're walking first. You're side by side. You're sharing joint attention to the horizon. You're not focused on each other. And two primates staring into each other's eyes can often be seen by either side as something that's very aggressive. The stance in walking alone kind of neutralizes lots of the kind of aggressive overtones that can happen with face-on confrontations. So you're sharing attention to something that's far away uh, because you're walking toward the horizon and you're doing it together. So your bodies are synchronized and your brains are also synchronized and they're synchronized in all sorts of interesting ways. So one of the things you must do when you're walking with a partner is walk at more or less the same pace as that partner. So you might have to slow down, they might have to speed up, but you, you have to meet in the middle. And we know it's an act of aggression 
disdain when one person consistently walks ahead of the other and refuses to take any account of them. And that also makes conversation really hard. When you're walking at the same pace as each other in the same direction, you're removing certain things that can facilitate aggression or misunderstanding or difficulty. And you're also synchronizing with each other, which means that it's easier for you to enter into the mental state of the other person and for them to enter into the mental state that you're in. There's also another interesting thing that's, that's going on where conversation is concerned. I, I don't cover that in the book, but I will in my next book. I hope will be out sometime next year. And this is the idea that when we're talking, we're engaged in a really interesting form of anti-synchrony. When you're talking, I'm breathing. When I'm talking, you're breathing. And we switch from one to the other in about a fifth of a second. It's, it's, it's a really, really remarkable phenomenon, this kind of turn-taking in conversation. So you've got all of those things going on. And I think then there's one other thing just to throw into the mix, which is that a core component of the feeling of anxiety is kind of excessive rumination. It's where you're in your head chewing over the same thought time and time and time again. And I think walking, especially if you're doing it over you know reasonable distances, allows you to engage in a kind of form of mindlessness rather than mindfulness, because you're not paying attention to what's going on inside your head. You're paying attention to the other person. You're paying attention to the environment that you're in, paying attention to the sounds of nature, maybe the buffeting of rain on your face if, if, if it happens to be wet or whatever it happens to be. But it gives you this opportunity to get outside yourself in an environment that we don't typically engage in. So, you know, the average adult in, in the United States, and I'm sure it's the same here in Ireland, spends somewhere around about 90 to 95% of their time indoors. But our experience of being out in the outdoors is one of restorativeness. The effect of being in nature, being close to hearing birds, seeing wild animals, even if it's just urban foxes, it gives you a view of the world that's very, very different. And people consistently show this kind of restorative effect for having been exposed to nature. So we need to green our towns and cities much more so that there's a lot more uh, nature experience in them. I agree. We, we need to find ways and build ways into our lives, into our cities to get more walking. And I want to get to that. I want to get to how we as individuals can get more walking out of our day. I, before we get there, I want to just share quickly a, a story that bubbled up in my memory when I was reading your book. And it gets to this idea of the primal urge we have to walk. And if walking is the fundamental way we experience the world, I think in children, there's just this desire to walk. And when I was younger, I was about five years old. I wanted to go out on a walk. My mom was making dinner and I was just, I must've been persistent because she finally said, sure, go for a walk, go around the block. And I did. I walked out of my house. I very generously defined the idea of a block by a several mile sort of radius that I was walking around. And I, I felt in complete control and I was out there enjoying the world. And it was just one of these early moments of freedom and walking. And my mom drove up in her car hysterical. I was apparently lost according to her. And people in the neighborhood were looking for me. I had no idea. And they brought me home and they talked with me and it got me thinking about how we encourage walking, the role of walking in life today. Was that some sort of fundamental desire to walk? And I was sort of running up against 
American culture in the 1970s, which is a very car culture, which was not a walking culture. Maybe talk a little bit about the society we live in, the cars, and what was potentially going on there, and, and is, that a, is that a unique experience? No, I, th- I think uh, children wandering off is, is universal. Uh, <laughs> it happens, has happened to me. <laughs> um, I, I, th- I think this is one of these things that kids do. But, you know, consider again the, the, the kind of the, the anthropology of it for a moment. If you were part of a, a tribe living in, in Africa, for example, you would be part of an extended family group or multiple families, maybe 120, 130 children and adults, grandparents, aunts and uncles, all that kind of thing. And the places that you can wander to are relatively limited in terms of where you, you will head off to. There will be danger, maybe from predatory animals or things like that, but there will be a lot of people around who all know you. Whereas in the modern world that we live in, now there are lots of people around who don't know you. You see faces that you've never seen before and you'll never see again. So the, the kind of context for walking is, is, is uh, quite a bit different. But that primal urge to get up and move, this is something that humans have. Uh, you know, it goes right back to the, the conversation at the start. Humans are very restless. We typically have moved right throughout history. We spoke about the, the walk out of Africa. We did that in multiple waves over maybe a 30 or 40,000 year period. And we ended up everywhere. The only place really we didn't end up was Antarctica. But just about everywhere else, humans have ended up. And we did that on foot. Island hopped on boats, obviously, but apart from that, we did it on, on foot. So this, you know, there's a has been a powerful selection effect in favour of humans who will move over those who do not. A curious thing that goes on, actually, again, when you consider the physiological differences between ourselves and our primate relatives, you look at chimps, you look at the great apes, they spend their lives being really indolent. <laughs> they sit around, they want something, they reach up into the tree <laughs> and they, they've got it. They might move much for, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, uh, whereas humans will walk and will walk considerable amounts and have done. And in terms of cardiac health, sitting around like that for a chimp is not bad for their hearts, whereas sitting around like that is extremely bad for us. There's been a, a fantastic series of studies by uh, uh, Kaplan and colleagues of the Tsimani in uh, South America who live, quote, again, ancestral lifestyles. They're non-mechanized. They have to walk everywhere. Running in the Amazonian jungle is difficult because of the density of foliage. And what they find is that the average 80-year-old has cardiac health equivalent of the average 50- or 55-year-old American. So they they, uh, really, really profit from this. And this is kind of a thing that has been lost from the society that we have engineered. We've kind of engineered movement out which is a, a great pity, but uh, that's something maybe we can deal with. Tonight. Yeah, let's talk about that because I, I'd like to shift to maybe an individual discussion about how we can get more walking in our life. You share some wonderful stories about incorporating walks into your research, into your writing, into just your daily living in both London and Dublin and maybe other cities you've lived in, but you mentioned those in the book. What advice do you have for people to really tap into to walking to get more benefit, to get more out of their life? Yeah, so this is a, a great and very difficult question. So to walk more, it's easy to focus on the individual and the individual being at fault for not moving. But we have a profound problem in terms of how we have designed and engineered our towns and cities over the, the last 80, 100 years since cars became 
popular in the 1920s and onwards. We've designed cities around the needs of cars rather than people. So if you can't walk on the sidewalk outside your house, well, then you're not going to walk, are you? You know, so policy decisions about how we design our neighbourhoods in order to facilitate movement really make a big difference to the amount of movement that you can engage in. I'll give you a simple example. In the building I work in, in Trinity, in the, in the centre of Dublin, it's a new building built, I guess, 15 or so years ago. When you go in the, the doors of the building, to get to my office on the third floor, you can take the lift, or the elevator as you call it, which is just there, or you can take the stairs. And to take the stairs, you have to go through three fire doors, or three sets of fire doors. So movement is not built into the fabric of the building. And that's a really profound problem. So it's easy to blame the individual when actually we should be looking at how the environment is designed around the individual to facilitate movement. If you build a car-bound city where you can only get from A to B by driving, people will drive. If you built a walkable city, people will walk. So, you know, Paris in the, in the last while, they're doing something called uh, Paris, the quarter hour city or the 15 minute city. And the idea there is that all of the facilities of, your, of modern life should be within 15 minutes of your front door, a 15 minute walk. So this means there, there's a progressive transformation of the city so that streets are being converted back to use by individuals rather than use by cars. So streets become destinations rather than thoroughfares. And um, there's a, a marked attempt to, attempt to shift the focus of, of the city so that you have lots and lots of small urban villages within the, the kind of the 15 minutes walk of, of the individual. So this really requires a kind of a top-down policy response. But people love this. This is the thing. You know, there's a kind of a, eh, do I want to get out of my car? But actually, you know, an old medieval city like Paris or a medieval city like Dublin, we can't take cars. You know, there's just isn't the room for them. So uh, designing the city so that people can move around in the ways that uh, the city can be used is, is really the, the, the kind of the key thing for getting more movement in. Let me quote a study, which I, I think is really interesting, from Beijing, of all places, to apparently to get a car in Beijing, you have to put yourself on a, on a waiting list. There are names drawn at random and you get your car. Uh, but a, a recent clever study looked at how heavy people were or how much they weighed, depending on their position in this lottery for cars. And over five years, if you got the car early, you typically ended up 14 or 15 pounds heavier than uh, the person who had to continue using public transport or continue using their bicycle or whatever it happened to be. So there's this kind of interesting interaction between policy and outcomes for individuals. So I, I don't think we should beat up people at all for their incapacity to move. It's very often down to design features of the environment. And I discussed in the book a, a particular study, which I, I'm a very big fan of, that had been conducted in the United Kingdom, showing that if you looked at walking capacity in people aged 65 plus, something like 80% or 85% of males and females have a walking impairment. So they walk more slowly, they shuffle along, they may have to walk with a cane. But critically, the crosswalk speeds are set for speeds for adults in their early 20s not somebody with a walking impairment in their early or late 60s or early 70s. So those people can't cross the road. So you're basically saying to people, you have a, a mobility impairment, you're trapped, tough luck. 
The same kind of rule goes for people who've got visual impairments. You know, if you don't design the crosswalk so that there are sounds to help people navigate, again, you're saying we're not going to care about your ability to get across the road safely. We only care about the able-bodied. So you're kind of denying full participation in society. And the truth is, you know, for an able-bodied person, when you put in these adjustments, it actually makes life nicer for everybody. You know, if you have a nice long period of time to cross the road, that's great. You can walk across with your kids and all the rest of it without thinking that you're going to get run over. You don't feel that sense of urgency because somebody's barreling at you in a in a car or whatever it happens to be. So they, these kind of design issues are really important, but they're overlooked all the time because mobility of the individual typically isn't baked into the kind of planning codes and regulations that cities have. And it's something I think the pandemic curiously has brought. I see here in Dublin, we've we've suddenly discovered that we need to have cycle lanes instead of lots of lanes dedicated to cars. Footpaths in my local village here in Dalkey have suddenly been widened. I remember a year or two ago walking with a friend of mine thinking and saying to him, really, I'd love to see all the cars <laughs> gone out of Dalkey. It's a 1,200-year-old village. It doesn't need cars. And, and he said, you're dreaming. And then the pandemic came along and suddenly the footpaths are widened. There's on-street dining. There's all sorts of things happening and it's a much more attractive environment than it used to be. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot more walking around my neighborhood too. And this point of these medieval cities or you talk about Paris or London, cities that grew and emerged before cars, they have this walkability. They have a certain accessibility. And when people from the United States go on vacation in Europe, I hear them when my friends go and they come back, they so often talk about walking around these cities and the sort of magic and wonder and romance of walking through these cobblestones and through the palazzas and these areas that were developed for walking. And we certainly like it, right? It's something that is really aligned with our nature. And we've definitely gotten away from it with the cars. I think one thing we can do is we can't always move. I mean, wherever you are today, that's where you are today. And I think there's opportunities to walk from where you are. You sometimes have to find them. But it's also something to consider when you're thinking about where you're going to live, the walkability. There was a, a walk score, a walkability score, I think, is an, was an internet tool that was developed here, and you could plug in your neighborhood and see what your score is. It was definitely something my wife and I considered when we moved into our neighborhood in Seattle. And the neighborhood we live in was built before cars. So it was built with horses in mind and there's no driveways. And there's very connected sidewalks. And we had to pay a little bit more to be in this neighborhood. But I think it was a good payoff. I think when we think about yeah, investment. But that's the point, isn't it? You, you know, you've hit on there really importantly that people's revealed preference, to use the jargon of the economists, is that you will pay more to live in places like this. And you see this everywhere you look in the world. The you know, the, the quote unquote leafy suburbs where you can walk around easily, people pay a premium for them. They want to live in those kinds of places. And people who can't live in those places because they don't have enough money are pushed to the margins and they end up living along the edges of freeways and, and places like this. And the mental health burden on those people is greatly increased. You know, so there is something about this human need to move with nature, feeling connected with others. When you put those together, these are good mental health and good physical health recipes. 
And when you pull these apart, this is a really bad recipe. You know, if you want to create enemy in your society, make people live in a horrible apartment building on the side of a freeway with uh, lots of trucks trundling by. That will be just awful. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, the other side of, of the, the coin with walking or maybe the other aspect of walking, you've got the environment that's out there and we sort of have to deal with the environment we have. But there's the, what we have on our side, no matter where we live, is the simplicity of walking. You talk about this in the book. It's just put on some walking shoes or maybe you don't even need shoes in certain climates and just go out and walk. It's right outside your door. There's no commute. There's no barrier. We can walk forth into the world from the steps of our house. And there's something just really accessible and beautiful about that. Yeah, for sure. And this is, I think, the thing that I love about walking the most. You know, you just put on a pair of shoes and assuming that the the neighborhood you're living in, of course, this is another issue, is a a safe neighborhood. Uh, Well, then you can go for a nice handy walk and you will feel uh, wonderful at, at the end of it. Now, of course, it is the case that, you know, some people correctly feel a degree of threat when they're out walking. Um, there you can find yourself walking in places that are where there's a, a degree of, of threat. I describe a walk like that in the start of the book, walking through Belfast during the uh, the height of the Troubles, when I found myself in a in an area that uh, I really, as a, uh, as a person from the Republic, shouldn't have been. Now, happily, nothing happened, but it was it was certainly uh, an experience. People are naturally inclined to feel a degree of threat. Uh, but again, the threat that you feel comes back to the issue of, are the neighborhoods safe? Is there plenty of lighting? Are there cameras around? What are the policies uh, regarding how walking is to be facilitated in areas or the various areas in, in a town? And these are kind of issues that go beyond what an individual can do, but we have to make the political system responsive to these needs. And one good way of doing that is by marching on City Hall. The march for walking. <laughs> the walk yes, for walking. <laughs> Do you walk every day and what's your routine? Have you built walking to be a habit in your life? And, and how can other people do that if you have? Yeah, so I feel if I go a day or two without having had a decent walk, I will feel sluggish and terrible. And that happened this past weekend. We had horrible, heavy rainstorms and the gusts of wind up to 80 or 100 kilometers an hour. So it just wasn't safe to be outdoors. And it's one of the the problems living in Ireland that we can have uh, rain that seems to go on forever. But for the hour just before uh, you and I have spoken, uh, I went for a walk with my daughter up the local hill. We had a lovely walk and I will have another walk later on. You know, one of the things to think about is our memory system is, is really poorly designed to remember how much we walk. You might get signals from your body that you're not feeling great because you haven't been walking much, but you don't remember how many steps you took last Thursday week. It's just, it's impossible for you to do that. So I think one of the simple things you can do is just turn on the walking app on your phone and track the number of steps that you do every day. And what we see when you do this is that people don't walk very much. You know, the average adult in a Western country walks somewhere around about four or 5,000 steps a day. The Japanese are, turn out to be the, the, the king or the kings of, or queens of walkers. They, they do about six to six and a half thousand steps a day. And that's because they have magnificent public transport. And I've never been to Japan, but when I was told this, I checked it out to see if it was true. Major 
Japanese cities don't have on-street car parking at all. If you look at cities like Tokyo or Osaka or these kinds of cities online, you will see no parking on the streets. So people have to walk. <laughs> it's kind of imposed upon them. And Japan is one of the world's great car manufacturing countries. You know, it's not that they hate cars. It's just that cars should be in their place and their place is not on the street. That's valuable real estate that should be devoted to people rather than metal boxes. Turn on your mobile phones, walking app, your smartphones, walking app. And then there are tricks. You know, if you have to take a phone call, one of those weird things that people don't really do much of anymore, but still we do it a bit. Always take it standing up and walking. You can walk diagonally, even in a small room. If it's an hour long, you'll crank out 3,000 steps without even thinking about it. If uh, you take the train or, or the, the bus or whatever to work, get out of stop early and uh, walk to where you're, you're working. At lunchtime, if you're going out for a, a sandwich or something, go a little bit further than you would have done ordinarily. Don't feel like you have to go to the nearest place and eat it at your desk. You will be more pro- uh, productive if you take that extra few steps Get flush a bit of oxygen through your head, change your context completely, get a little bit of air in. So those are the kinds of continual adjustments that we can make. And your smartphone is your friend. You can listen to podcasts if you if you can't be bothered listening to your own thoughts, but you'll know how many steps that you're taking. And my general advice is as we walk so little, try and walk five thousand steps more than you're currently doing. That will bring you up if you're a very poor walker to 6,000, 7,000 steps per day. If you're an average walker, that will bring you up to nine or 10,000 steps a day. Do that in bursts right throughout the day. A couple of minutes here, a couple of minutes there, maybe a couple of longer ones. And then if you're walking for heart health, you need to walk at a pace that makes it difficult to talk to somebody else. So you're imposing some cardiac strain. And you know there are other things you can do. You can do pack walking where you can bring weights or, or whatever. But those are the kinds of things that I, I, I suggest you do. Those are fantastic and great advice. As I'm getting older, I'm almost 50 now, I seem to be appreciating walking more and more. Maybe this is something we all do because in my peer group, I in my conversations, I hear people my age suddenly discovering walking and discovering the benefits of walking. I love that. It's great. I wish I would have had more walking throughout my life. So it's something I'm trying to encourage my kids to do. My kids who are both teenagers do not appreciate walking. If I suggest walking, it's like, well, why don't we just get in the car and get there faster? So there's a little, I have a challenge there. And there's this branding. There's one more quick thing. There's this branding issue of walking. When we say something is pedestrian in the United States, I don't know if you use that term in Ireland. Yeah, we do, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, pedestrian um, is boring. It's bland, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really dull. Um, I, I, and actually, I think this is where we, we have a, you know, by contrast with going fast in a car, you know, the, if we go back to the 80s and uh, Tracy Chapman's fast car song, or, you know, there's a whole rock and roll thing going back to the 50s uh, about the car representing freedom. That's all changed because everybody has a car. Uh, so you're not that free in a car anymore or you're free to queue with everybody else uh, <laughs> to get off the slipway or whatever it happens to be. We suffer from a a deficit where the number of words for walking is concerned. You know, the phrase creative walking, it's not a good one, really. But feeling creative as as the result of having walked, social walking, we don't really, you know, it's not a good word or a good phrase either, even though the benefits are are very, very clearly there. And I, I think there's something about walking as you get older. 
Walking is a form of activity that's uniquely accessible right across the lifespan. You know, so if, if you look at people, for example, who walk the Camino in uh, Spain, this, this amazing walk to uh, Santiago de Compostela, uh, you can walk up to 1,200 kilometers or more on that walk. And uh, the pilgrims on that walk will range from five, six, seven years of age all the way up to late 80s and early 90s. This is, you know, so it is something that is profoundly accessible right throughout the lifespan. I think high tempo sports as you get older, playing squash, for example, is, is maybe not recommended. You certainly don't want to be playing American football in your 50s, although Brady seems to be <laughs> that. pushing that envelope. But I, I suspect he's unique. But, you know, these, these other forms of activity are, are difficult to keep up, you know, and kind of blended activity like walking while you're playing golf. I think, you know, that that's an activity you can keep up until, again, you're in your 70s or 80s without too much trouble. So I, I think walking is one of these things that people can engage in right th- throughout the lifespan. And as you get older, maybe the tempo of walking, you know, has something nice to say for itself compared to the tempo that's involved in playing racquetball or whatever other sport you might have been previously interested in. I like how you brought up golf because one of the most popular books on golf is one titled A Good Walk Spoiled. I think it was Yes, Mark Twain. (laughs) A Good Walk Spoiled, yes. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for walking me through all this, uh, you know, research on, on walking. We didn't talk about that, but when we talk about how we think, how we spatially our thoughts. We use the term walking. I want to walk you through my argument. I want to walk you through my presentation. Uh, that's a whole, it's a whole nother part of your book. I'll leave it to the readers that can, there's just so much to absorb about walking. And I think so much opportunity in our lives to get more benefit out of walking. Shane, where can people find out more about you and this next book you're working on and, and the kinds of stuff you're writing about? So the, the easiest place to go is, uh, like everybody, I've started a newsletter. So if you go to brainpizza.substack.com, you'll find it very easily. The tagline is small, medium and large slices of writing on brain and behavior. Uh, and I've put up quite a few pieces on uh, walks that I've undertaken. Uh, many of the pieces are actually bits that didn't make it into the book because they just didn't quite fit. The last piece I put up was on walks that I've undertaken in the U.S., in Ireland, in the UK, in France, and in India. The other place you can find me is at shaneomara.com. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for being on The Good Life. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.